passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Now, I want to ask you, how many of you have a job that is demanding, that puts a fair amount of, of stress on your life? You know, people always seem to want a, a piece of you. They're always texting you. They're always emailing you. They're always calling you. And at the end of the day, you're like, just leave me alone. Anybody feel that way? Oh, it seems like a fair amount of us feel that way. We live in a high relational demand work environment. Well, I have news for you. If you live in a high relational demand work environment, you are just getting a small sampling of what it was like every single day for Jesus Christ. We'll learn more about that in a few minutes. But this morning we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last week we returned to our study of the Gospel of Mark. We had taken a, a brief break from that for the Christmas season, and we have our finger back in the text of Mark. And what we have only done is, in this fall, we only ended up two chapters into this incredible Gospel, which is not too far at all. But while we're only two chapters in, we've seen that there are two things that Mark is driving home in this gospel that are extremely important for us to understand. They are the identity of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. Again and again, we've learned that Jesus Christ is none other than the very Son of God. Mark said that in his opening line. God the Father affirmed that at Jesus' baptism. This is my Son whom I am well pleased. Even the demons have gotten in on the act. <laughs> Whenever they see Jesus, they say, this, he is truly the Holy One of God. So we know that, without question, the identity of Jesus. But then in story after story, what's happened is Mark has been unpacking the authority of Christ. He has authority to cast out demons with just a word. Authority to heal every single disease that anyone suffers with and to do it instantly. We even learned he has authority to forgive sin itself. I mean, human suffering is, is a serious problem, but our, our broken relationship with God is an even more serious problem. But Jesus can forgive sin. And then last week, Jesus demonstrated his greatest authority of all when he said that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, as we saw last week, Lord of the Sabbath doesn't really mean too much to us. But to the Jews in Christ's day, this was a humongous claim. And the Sabbath was part of the creation itself. On the seventh day, God rested. The Sabbath was encapsulated into the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, it was the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, the Pharisees, who were the leaders of the Jewish people in that day, had taken it upon themselves to be the guardians of the Sabbath. Last week, we saw that they had bolted literally thousands of rules onto the Bible, detailing what you could and could not do. And most of it was what you could not do on the Sabbath. And Jesus comes along and in what is a humongously inflammatory statement to them says, guys, 
I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, not you. I'm in charge of what happens on this day. You're not in charge of what happens on this day. Literally, Jesus says, I am the one who created the Sabbath, and I am the one who defines the Sabbath. We saw that, uh, we know that it was actually Jesus who carried out God the Father's creative will. So on the seventh day of creation, when it says God rested, who was it that actually rested? Jesus. Jesus was the one who created the Sabbath. He defined the Sabbath. Now, this completely in-your-face rebuke of the religious leaders of the day, saying that Jesus is the one who controls and defines the Sabbath, was more than they can handle. After he healed a man with a withered hand right in front of their eyes, they left and began to plot with a group called the Herodians for his death. Now, we learn how interesting this is, because while the Pharisees were the ultra-religious conservatives of that day, the Herodians weren't even a religious group. They were a political group committed to advancing the cause of Herod and the Romans. They were the ultra-liberal group of the day, the democratic socialist group, if you want, in the ancient world. So we saw that it was, at this point, the ultra-conservative group, the Pharisees, and the ultra-liberal group, the Herodians, have joined forces to plan the death of Jesus. And guess what? We're only in the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and they're already looking to get rid of him. That's where we left off last week. This week, we pick up in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. So I'd like you to take out your copy of God's Word, turn to Mark chapter 3, Stand out of reverence for God's Word. And I don't care if you're reading a paper Bible or if you're pulling it up in an electronic Bible. That's fine with me. Go ahead and follow along in your copy of the Scriptures as I read verses 7 through 19 of the third chapter of Mark. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. They came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonadris, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
It ends the reading of the Word of God. You may be seated. Now, as you look at the text I just read, it really breaks up simply into two parts. The first part talks about the great crowds that followed Jesus and hints to us the incredible relational demands put on Jesus. The second part tells us a little bit how Jesus uh, determined to handle these high demands of the crowds, how he appointed apostles who would sort of divide out the work and actually carry on the work for him after he had died and risen from the dead and gone home to be in heaven. So let's go ahead and start diving in here right at the beginning. The first thing we see is this. Jesus had remarkable popularity. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. The point of this verse is obviously the popularity of Jesus. And I just want to admit to you that I had sort of lost sight of the incredible popularity that Jesus held in the ancient world until I was studying this verse this week and unpacking it and beginning to understand its meaning. And I'd wager to bet that probably each one of us has lost sight of the popularity of Jesus in the ancient world. Now, Mark begins by explaining it this way. He withdrew and went down by the sea. Now, to understand what's going on here, we're going to need a little geography lesson for a few minutes. So, Jeremy, go ahead and put up my geography lesson here. Last week, when he healed the man with a withered hand, he was in the town of Capernaum. And I put a star around Capernaum to show you where he was. But at that point, we know that the Pharisees and the Herodians have begun to plot his death, so probably a good idea to get out of town. Would you agree? Yeah, it's time to leave town. So he actually leaves town, and he goes down by the sea. Capernaum is actually a fishing village, so it's on the sea. He just sort of moves down the Sea of Galilee. And for those of you who are new to the Sea of Galilee, when we hear the word sea, we think a salt water, large body of water, it's actually not salt water. It is a freshwater body of water. Think a little bit ver bigger version of Big Spirit Lake is what we're talking about. That's essentially what's going on here. And I'll, I'll tell you that I believe that when Jesus withdrew from the town and went by the sea, the people of Capernaum were really excited to see him go. You say, well, why would that be? Here's the deal. Capernaum at this time is a city of approximately 1,500 people. It's not a large place. Now, as we start to examine this, you will see the size of the crowds following Jesus at this time are several thousand, possibly into tens of thousands of people. What do you think it was like when 10 or 12,000 people descended on Capernaum, a town normally of 1,500, all to see Jesus Christ. You can understand this by you know, listening to our local media and talked about the migrant caravans and they come into to Tijuana, Mexico, and they completely overwhelm the city. This is exactly what is going on in Capernaum with the people who are coming there to see Jesus. They are overwhelming 
the capacity of the city. It's a good thing he got out of town where there's actually some space in the countryside, in the open area by the sea. Now, at this point, what Mark does to give you an idea of the size of this crowd, he tells you where these people are coming from. He says some of these people are coming from Galilee. And leave that up there. You can see Galilee down to the southwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's Essentially, Galilee is people who live in the area of that large body of water. Not a big deal. You could understand why people would come from Galilee to see Jesus. But then he continues. He says people are also coming from Jerusalem and Judea. Go ahead and switch that. I left the star on where Capernaum is up there so you can see. Jerusalem is about 70 miles to the south. Folks, they don't have cars. They don't have superhighways. They have dirt roads, animals, and they walk. People are coming 70 miles from Jerusalem to see Jesus, to touch Jesus, and be healed by Jesus. Judea, it's the area surrounding Jerusalem. And it can be it's sort of expanding out around Jerusalem more to the south. So maybe you have people at that point coming a hundred miles to see Jesus on foot. And then he says, there's also people coming from Idumea. Go ahead and put that one up. Idumea is even further south. Technically, it's out of Jewish territory. It's in uh, Edomite territory the descendants of Esau. So now you've left Jerusalem and you have people from another country all walking (laughs) because they want to see Jesus. They want to hear Jesus. They want to touch Jesus and be healed by Jesus in the tiny fishy village of Capernaum that normally has 1,500 people. You're getting a sense on the size of the crowd? And then from there, it says they come from beyond the Jordan. Now, here's the Jordan River. It's going from the Sea of Galilee heading down to the Dead Sea, and I put the, the label on it next to you there. Beyond the Jordan, as best as I can tell, as we're talking off to the east, that's technically old Ammonite territory. So you've got, what, 50, 70 miles in that direction people are coming from, all descending on Capernaum. And then it says they also are coming from Tyre and Sidon. And where are those located at? Go to the north. Those are Phoenician uh, seafaring cities. Once again, beyond the realm of the Jewish people, people are coming from that direction all to see Jesus. So what you get here is you have people that are Jewish people coming to see Jesus, Gentile people coming to see Jesus, Edomite people coming to see Jesus, Phoenician people coming to see Jesus teach, to be healed by Jesus, and to touch Jesus, all descending on a town that normally has 1,500 people. I said he's popular. Now, some of you may be quibbling on this idea. Really, 10,000, 12,000? 15,000 people coming to see Jesus? You've all heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000, haven't you? But that was 5,000 men, not including women and children. 
So if a wife comes along with her husband, that's 10,000. You throw a couple of kids in there, you have 12 to 15,000 people he fed at one time. A lot of people coming to see Jesus. Now, the next question that comes to your mind is, they just want to hear him speak? Why did they come? Here's why they came. The crowds came primarily for healing. You must understand the context of the time. We live in a, a day that we have health care. We have hospitals. Although it's very expensive, you know, at least we have access to it. But in the ancient world, that was not the way it worked. You didn't have health care. You had people that were sick all the time. There's no such thing as penicillin out there. If you needed surgery, oh, they could do surgery, but there's no such thing as Novocaine, <laughs> and there's no such thing as sterilized instruments. So the idea is lots of people are sick. Many people are ill. It just permeates society, the sickness and death. People do not usually live to an old age. And then they hear about this guy called Jesus. This time, his ministry has been going on for a while. He's healed thousands of people. Lepers who had instantly had their leprosy removed and been walking all over Jerusalem, Judea, and Galilee, telling their story. People who are paralyzed are walking all over Israel in the ancient world, telling their story. People who couldn't see, whose eyes were healed by Jesus, can't stop talking about what Jesus did for them. And as people hear these stories, they are coming like ants out of the ground, all converging on Capernaum to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, and to be healed by Jesus. And this is one of the reasons we see that Jesus seldom, if ever, goes into a city at this time, because he overwhelms the capacity of the ancient cities. To give you a picture of what it's like, we know he is down by the seashore, and he is teaching there in a wide-open wilderness area. And Mark continues and tells us, this, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. What a cool picture. So many people want to touch Jesus, want to be with Jesus, that he is in danger of being physically crushed by the crowds. In fact, he keeps a boat ready at the shore. Now, some of you have thought, well, Jesus taught from a boat because it was quaint. Uh, he taught from a boat because there's probably good acoustics, and you have all those nice ideas. That's not the truth. The truth is Jesus kept a boat ready because in case he was going to be crushed by the crowds, he could get in the boat, go out into the water, knowing his front row could only tread water for so long. It's security measures to hold people away because he is that incredibly popular. In fact, we see this is actually what he did in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Notice as we read the text. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. 
and a very large crowd gathered about him. What's the problem we have a large crowd? Crushing. Everybody wants to be with him and touch him. So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Sort of get some distance in there. Make this a manageable speaking situation. Because he wants not just to heal people, but he obviously wants to teach people. Tell them the good news of the gospel and of trusting in him. Now Mark continues and tells us this. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. When Mark says he healed many, that's not to say that he healed a lot, but there's some that he skipped. Actually, in the Greek, it's written in the superlative fashion. It's designed to tell you that there were vast numbers of people that he healed. Huge quantities of people that he constantly and consistently healed. So that people know this. If they can just get to Jesus, they can be healed by Jesus of anything. So it says they are pressing in around him. The Greek word for press means to apply pressure to a barrier as if to break it. The best mental picture you can get of this is what we often see in the news with the migrant caravans. How they come up to those fences and there's hundreds if not thousands on one side of the fence and all the migrants start pushing on the fence pressing on the fence, knowing that hundreds of them working together upend the fence, push it over, and they continue to go on through. This is what the crowds are like for Jesus. Literally, breaking through security, pushing in around him to touch him, to be near him. Thus, he ends up in a boat, because you can only swim for so long. Now, to give you an idea of what this is like, let me just give you a couple other verses from the Gospel of Mark that are very insightful. Mark 6. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even just the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. If I could just touch the hem instantly, completely, and totally, no matter what my disease, it's eradicated, gone, and I am healed. You getting an idea of the power of Jesus? Mark chapter 5. And she had heard the report about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments... I will be made well. Now, earlier I started out by saying this. How many of you, you have demanding jobs where everybody seems to want a piece of you all the time? If you have a job like that, you're just beginning to understand what it was like for Jesus. Everybody wants to reach out, to touch him, to be instantly healed by him. They are literally crushing him on a daily basis. I told you he was popular. Now, the text continues. 
Jesus drove demons out of the possessed. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. When it says unclean spirits, that's essentially talking about uh, demon-possessed people. Now, when we read this, uh, one thing sort of doesn't feel right to us. We say, you know, in the Scriptures, we find lots of people who are apparently demon-possessed. And I don't see lots of people out there who are demon-possessed today. We don't have a lot of people running around like Marilyn Manson. And if they are, they're usually in jail, thankfully. And I think we need to understand, if someone who is demonically possessed does not mean they're all running around crazy with long hair and bedhead. We saw this earlier in Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. Remember where there was a demon-possessed man in the synagogue? We talked about this. What would a demon-possessed man be doing in the synagogue? If people knew he was demon-possessed, why would they let him in the synagogue? Maybe he didn't look that crazy. Maybe he looked pretty normal. Maybe he was undercover. He's undercover there to try and sow division, disunity, and teach non-truths about Jesus and non-truths about God to lead people away. That's what the demon-possessed man was like in the synagogue. But here we find that it doesn't mean if the person could be demon-possessed and undercover or the person can be demon-possessed and overt. Either way, when a demon-possessed person comes around Jesus, they completely fall down before him and they say this, you are the Son of God. Like, they cannot resist Jesus. The, the term fall down here in the Greek literally refers to somebody falling down in front of a, someone who is vastly superior to them in homage, fear, and reverence. I like the way James describes it this way. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Demons shake and quiver in the very presence of Jesus. That's exactly what we find here in Mark's gospel. So he heals people of everything. Every single demon is completely eradicated, and they are falling down in fear before Jesus. And then we find this. Jesus didn't allow the demons to be in charge of his publicity, by the way. Mark 3.12 and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Why was it that Jesus refused to let the demons reveal his identity? I think it's just this simple. You don't want your enemies in charge of your publicity program. You really don't. They may be saying the right thing, but you don't want your enemies in charge of your publicity program. It's like trying to put Jim Acosta in charge of the White House press corps. Trust me, it would not go well, even if he says the right things. It'll be done in the wrong way. And so Jesus is like, don't you reveal my identity. I'll take care of that in my time, in my way, the way I want to do it. Very similar thing happens in Acts chapter 16. 
You can check that sometime. Paul and Silas were actually going around and they were, they were healing people and they were proclaiming the gospel and a demon-possessed woman started following them and she sang the truth. She kept saying, these men are telling you the way to be saved. She followed them for days, saying nothing but the truth as a demon-possessed woman. And finally, Paul cast the demon out of her and said, enough of this, because I don't want a demon in charge of my publicity campaign. It just will not go well, even if you're saying the right thing. Very similar to what we have going on. And let me give you the summary of this section. Jesus has incredible popularity. Popularity way beyond what we would normally realize. Capernaum, a town of 1,500, has 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 or more people coming into it to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, to be instantly, completely, and totally healed by Jesus. They're coming from all different corners of the ancient world at that point as they're hearing about this. Jesus is in danger of being crushed. Jesus has to teach from a boat so people can't have to swim to even get to him. Amazing and unprecedented popularity. Now at this point you're thinking, Jesus, you may be the son of God, but how can you keep up these personal demands? And Jesus says, I have a plan. I have a plan, and that involves sort of dividing the workout. I'm going to create 12 apostles who will do what I've been doing. 12 apostles who will teach, who will cast out demons, and who will heal the sick, because I'll give them my power. And that's what we find happens next. So Jesus chose 12 apostles, verses 13 and 14. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. When we think of these 12 apostles, usually the default of what comes to our mind is sort of what uh, we would see in the stained glass windows in churches in Europe that are Catholic or Anglican. Maybe you've seen these stained glass windows where they have the people are down here on the very bottom of the window, and God is in the top, at the very top of the window, and the apostles, they're not equidistant. They're closer to God than they are to man. The apostles are the ones that are glowing in the... Uh, in the stained glass window. They're the ones who are the best, the brightest, the most godly. They're more like God than they are like us. That's often what comes to our minds. I could never be like an apostle. And if that's what you think this morning, I have to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. As we put our finger in the text and we learn this, the apostles are incredibly ordinary people. The apostles are people who are beset with weaknesses, who have character flaws. The apostles are people who screw things up repeatedly. Jesus calls them spiritually dense. Jesus calls them slow to learn. Essentially, there are the blockheads out there. They're ordinary people just like you and me. By the way, just to give you an idea of how ordinary they are, you realize 
even in the apostles, in the 12, there's people, they span the political spectrum. They approached life completely differently. For instance, one of them was Simon the Zealot. The Zealots, we know a little bit about them. The Zealots were a guerrilla warfare group committed to the overthrowing of the Roman government in any way they needed to, usually with guerrilla behind-the-scene warfare. Some of the Zealots were called Sicarii. Sicarii were people who had daggers they kept in their cloaks. They would go into densely packed crowds where everyone was getting bumped and pushed, and they would snuggle up behind a Roman soldier. They'd take their dagger out, which was also sharp, and they'd quickly knife the person through the back, put the dagger back in their cloak, and slip into the crowd. The knife was so sharp that many of the soldiers didn't even know what happened until the blood was all over the place, and they bled out in the streets. That's the background of where Simon the Zealot comes from. He's one of the 12. Now, I'm not saying he was a Sicari, but that's what the, the Zealots were like. They were part of that group, the Sicari. Now, on the other side, you have Matthew, also known as Levi, who was a tax collector. Instead of being a guerrilla warfare against the Romans, he was collecting taxes for the Romans very supportive of the Roman government. In fact, collecting extra taxes to line his pockets a little thicker. You put a tax collector and a zealot in the same room, what would they normally do? Kill each other. But yet here we find a tax collector and a zealot chosen by Jesus to be his apostles. Something else. Jesus chose his apostles, by the way. They didn't choose him. You realize, as you look at the text, Jesus handpicked every one of those apostles. They didn't apply for the job. Jesus chose them for the job. Luke chapter 6 tells us that he actually spent an entire night in prayer before he chose them. Now, you need to realize, when Jesus chose them, he knew them. And he knew them better than any of us or anyone else knew them. He knew about their flaws. He knew about their character weaknesses. He knew about their selfishness, their struggles with anger. He knew about their pride. But yet, Jesus chose them anyway, brought them to himself. Jesus even knew Judas would betray him when he selected him to be one of his 12 apostles. Now, the other thing we learn is that Jesus chose 12 for a reason. You may wonder, why are there 12? How about 13? 15 apostles? Why not? In fact, why was it that Jesus chose 12, and then after Judas outed himself, the very first order of business by the apostles was to select somebody to take his place so they'd go back to 12. What was it about this number? I think the answer to that question sort of goes back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. One of the first things he did was he cleared the temple. Remember that? cleared out the temple because he said, you guys have made my father's house. Instead of a house of prayer, you've turned it into a mini mall. 
people exchanging money for exorbitant rates in the court of the Gentiles, which is supposed to be a place of prayer, people selling all kinds of sacrifices there for exorbitant profits. He cleared it all out. He says, because you guys have completely bankrupted what God intended you to be as the spiritual leaders. Then in Mark chapter 3, we already know the spiritual leaders at this point have decided that they're going to out him. They're going to kill him and get rid of him. The end of Jesus' ministry, he cleared the temple once again, kicking them all out, saying, you guys have totally blown it. Matthew 23, he says of the spiritual leaders, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You're filled with dead men's bones. You're fools. You're arrogant. You're prideful. He completely condemns the spiritual leadership of Israel at this time and rejects them. And ultimately, the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. So how does this connect to the 12 apostles? You see, the 12 apostles were the 12 replacement leaders for the tribes of Israel because Jesus had rejected the leadership in Israel that was in place. And you say, where do you find that? Just go ahead and look at the text. Luke 22. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging what? Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then it also continues, speaking about the new Jerusalem. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at, at, the, twelve ga- at the twelve gates, at, excuse me, at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And on the wall, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the apostles are the new foundation upon which everything would be built. Now it's interesting. You'd think that if these guys are the new foundation, then according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, they're the foundation of the church. They better be special people, incredible people. But that's not what we find. They are incredibly ordinary people, broken people, just like you and just like me. Paul says this about the Christians in Corinth. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God likes to choose nobodies, weak people, and empower them through his spirit to be used in his church. Then when we turn to the apostles, what do we find? Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived they were just uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They were 12 ordinary men that were broken like you and me with faults and with weaknesses that Jesus chose to use as the foundation of his church. Something else to tell you just quickly. Uh, Jesus called them apostles, making them his official representatives. Apostle in the Aramaic literally means official representatives for him. It would mean an apostle in the Aramaic would mean someone who went in your place and carried all the power and authority that you held. And by the way, this is exactly what's going to happen. Jesus is going to train them up. His training strategy is you must be with me. And then by the time we get to Mark chapter 6, he sends them out on their first mission. And what do they do? To teach as he taught to drive out demons as he did, and to heal the sick just like he did. They're apostles. Now, let's have some fun as we start to wrap this part up. Who were the apostles? He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonadris, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These names of the twelve apostles, just so you know, they are given four times in Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and actually in Acts. Now what gets a little confusing is that while there's always 12 in the list, the names sometimes do not match up, and they're also not necessarily in the same order. So what is going on here? The first thing you need to know is that many of these apostles were given nicknames. And sometimes in this list, those nicknames will be used. And I'll explain this in a few minutes, and you'll see how this works. The other thing you need to know is that while the lists are not in different orders, there is structure to those lists. Go ahead and put my graphic up. Oh, thank you, Jeremy, you already did. Uh, here's the list. What you notice is it seems like Jesus has divided the 12 into three groups of four because every group seems to have a leader that always falls in the same place and the juggling takes place under the leader. Like, okay, Peter's the leader, and who went with him? And then you start to juggle the numbers. The names, okay, Philip was the leader of the next group. You start to juggle the names. And that's the way it seems to come together. That Jesus gave them, um, uh, you know, a division. He gave them leaders in each division, and the names are juggled from there. Thank you, Jeremy. You can go and take that down. By the way, the names are given in uh, sort of a descending order of importance. Like Peter is always at the top because he is the leader of all the apostles. Judas, for very obvious reasons, is always at the bottom of these things. Now what I want to do is show you how these names and these nicknames are used in this list. Because once you understand that, you get a little chuckle 
and sort of helps to make sense as to why some of these don't seem to, or at least appear to match up. At the top is always Simon. Simon has a nickname. The nickname is Peter, which simply means the rock. Jesus is the one who gave him that name. Because the funny part is, if anything, Peter is not by nature a rock. He is the guy that says, oh, I'll be with you. Uh, never deny you. What does he do? Three times. Denies him before morning. He's vacillating. He's all over the place. And Peter gives him a nickname to try and encourage him to be what he should be. The rock, foundation, steady. The next in the list would be James, the son of Zebedee, and John. Now let me tell you a little bit about this. Interestingly, James and Don are almost always mentioned with their father, Zebedee. Uh, we don't know much about Zebedee, but apparently he was a very popular guy, very important guy to get mentioned all the time. If we do know about him, it seems like he ran the Zebedee fishing company on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, in John chapter 18, it says that the high priest knew John, the son of Zebedee. So apparently Zebedee's fish were popular enough in Jerusalem that the high priest even knew who he was. Interesting stuff. Now, here's where it gets interesting. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are nicknamed by Jesus the sons of thunder. That is not because they ride motorcycles. Sons of thunder literally is a way of saying the hotheads. These were the guys who had anger management issues. Now you say, really? James and John have anger management issues? I'll show you. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? What's going on here? They have just passed through a Samaritan town that has been inhospitable towards them. James and John, Mr. Anger Management people, say, I know how we should respond to this. Let's call down fire from heaven and cook everybody to a crisp. No, you're not supposed to be um, terrorists, guys. You're supposed to be evangelists. I think we have it wrong. So you can see here they have anger management issues. The next guy in the list was Andrew. Now, we don't know much about Andrew, but I can tell you this, that he is Peter's brother, and he's also good at bringing people to Jesus, but other than that, we don't know much. The next guy in the list was Philip. Philip is obsessed with numbers. Very little is told to us about Philip, but I can tell you this, that when it came to the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus turned to Philip and said, Philip, how much would it take to feed these people? The bean counter does the mental math, and he goes, oh, no, no, no. 20 denarii wouldn't even buy everybody a bite. We can't do it. We can't afford it. Everybody needs somebody like that in their group, right? The one who says we can't afford it, the realist, the pragmatist, that's Philip. Now, the next guy on the list is Bartholomew. His, that's his nickname. Bar is son of, Bartholomew is, is the rest of it. He's actually known as Nathaniel. That's his real name. He often hangs out with Philip. Matthew, he's the tax collector. We've studied him before. He's the guy who writes the gospel that is associated with his name. The next guy on the list is Thomas. 
We know him as Doubting Thomas, obviously. He's the one who did not believe in the resurrection of Christ until Jesus showed up a week later. But in John chapter 11, verse 16, he's also known as Didymus, which means the twin. Now, how many of you came in this morning and realized that in the apostles, one of them was a twin? That's literally what it was. He's known as the twin. James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, we don't know hardly anything about Alphaeus. We know almost nothing about James, but we do know this in Mark 15, verse 40. He is also called James the Less. Some translations say James the Younger. And I think they're just trying to be nice because the Greek would nice easily be translated as James the Short Guy. He looks like Danny DeVito. I told you there's nicknames in here. This is the really short apostle. That's the one we know that. Thaddeus. Now, some of you may think, well, that sounds like a good one. I'll call my son Thad. Don't call your son Thaddeus. Here's why. Thaddeus literally means mama's boy. So he is one of the apostles known as Mr. Mama's Boy. Not quite the way you'd like to be known. It's a nickname again. Next would be Simon the Zealot, who is the Antifa member of the day. We've already learned about the Zealots. And finally, Judas Iscariot, who ultimately betrays Jesus. And I say this just to tell you, this is a very interesting group. Jesus chooses very ordinary people that he raises up as the foundation of his church. He chooses people who are tax collectors, bean counters, revolutionaries, fishermen, hotheads, and of course, a mama's boy. All to become the foundation of the church, the new leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, here's where it's interesting. Jesus chose 12 ordinary men to be the foundation of his church. But Jesus loves to use ordinary men and women to be the continuance of his church. He loves to use ordinary men and women like you and me, beset with weaknesses, frailties, mistakes, and hang-ups be the men and women he uses to carry the church into the next generation. Folks, we have an incredible God, and we have a wonderful Savior who loves to use ordinary people just like you and me to do wonderful work for his kingdom. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.